some serious business ahead of us today, but as you know, sometimes the girl just want to have fun. Come on, come on, come on, come on, I'm trying, I'm trying guys. Um, but in all seriousness, this afternoon we are uh, celebrating a truly historic moment uh, for marriage equality, and so I brought a friend with me uh, who is an icon, really doesn't need any introduction, but we are thrilled that she is here. Uh, we are honored to have her here with us today on this important day, Cindy Lauper, who has been advocating, as many of you know, uh, for LGBTQI plus community for decades, particularly to end youth homelessness. Cindy will be performing this afternoon, and I thought I'd invite her uh, to in front of all of you all today uh, to say a few words. And Cindy, thank you so much for coming. The podium is yours. Hi. I just... Um, I just want to tell you, I came here because I wanted to say thank you to President Biden, um, Speaker Pelosi, Vice President Harris, and all the advocates and his team for, for once, our families, mine and a lot of my friends and people you know, sometimes your neighbors, we can rest easy tonight because our families are validated and because now we're allowed to love who we love, which sounds odd to say, but Americans can now love who we love. And bless Joe Biden and all the people that worked on this for allowing people not to worry and their children not to worry about their future. Thank you, and thank you for being supportive, and hey, I will sing out to you. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much, Cindy, for coming. Again, this is an extremely uh, historic day, a proud day for me, and so many of us here at the White House, and so many Americans just across the country, and uh, we truly will be looking forward to Cindy performing on the South Lawn today. Today's a good day 
America takes a vital step toward equality, toward liberty and justice, not just for some, but for everyone, everyone, toward creating a nation where decency, dignity, and love are recognized, honored, and protected. Today, I sign the Respect for Marriage Act into law. Deciding whether to marry, who to marry, is one of the most profound decisions a person can make. And as I've said before, and some of you might remember, on a certain TV show 10 years ago, I got in trouble. Uh, marriage, I mean this involved my heart, marriage is a simple proposition. Who do you love? And will you be loyal to that person you love? It's not more complicated than that. And the law recognizes that everyone should have the right to answer those questions for themselves without the government interference. Uh, gay marriage, whatever you think of gay marriage, is a pretty handy way for politicians to distract from their own failures. Here's Joe Biden. The world's going to Hades in a handbasket. We are desperately concerned about the circumstance relating to uh, avian flu. We don't have enough vaccines. We don't have enough police officers. And we're going to debate the next three weeks, I'm told, gay marriage, a flag amendment, and God only knows what else. I can't believe the American people can't see through this. We already have a law, the Defense of Marriage Act. We've all voted, not where I voted, and others said, look, marriage is between a man and a woman, and states must respect that. Nobody's violated that law. There's been no challenge to that law. Why do we need a constitutional amendment? Marriage is between a man and a woman. <laughs> so he gets a pass because that was pre-dementia. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It's the 14th of December, year of our Lord, 2022. And that intro is just priceless. A, he's brain dead. Then we're talking about a bill that has nothing to do with protecting rights. It actually infringes on Christian rights, as we've covered. And Biden and that gay African-American lady, that's her only qualification because she reads off what other people tell her to say. And then that perfect save segment from Tucker. Oh, that's just... That's just too good. So we're going to do a shorter podcast today. Hit a couple sound bites up front. And then we're going to do a quick thing on Twitter and Awoke. I'm not going to go into hot takes. There's not going to be any slides today. It's just going to be my ugly ass face talking about what we're going to listen to. So our first one is Griner. I want us to listen to these sound bites up front. John Kirby was an admiral. He had the same code I did. How he gave up his honor, uh, I don't know. And, and you talked about Victor Boot, a lot of criticism. And let yeah. me give you some more from Democratic Chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Robert Menendez. We cannot ignore that releasing Boot back into the world is a deeply disturbing decision. We must stop inviting dictatorial and rogue regimes to use Americans overseas as bargaining chips. He would have gone free anyway in 2029. He wasn't serving a life sentence. It's a long uh, way away. It's six years away. Uh, and nobody's doing backflips over there about the fact that Mr. Boot is a free man six years earlier than he would have been. 
but we're going to protect our national security. And uh, if Mr. Boot decides to go back to his previous line of work, then we're going to do what we need to do uh, to hold him accountable and to protect our interests. Your critics just say you just weren't tough enough. You have to stand up to these people to, to get uh, detainees released. Then they, I understand the criticism, uh, they weren't in the room. They weren't on the phone. They weren't watching the incredible effort and determination by uh, Mr. Carson's and his team to try to get both Paul and Brittany out together. Um, I mean, in a negotiation, you do what you can. You do as much as you can. You push and you push and you push. And we did. And this deal we got last week, that was the deal that was possible. It was the deal we could get now. Now was the moment we could get it. And we executed it. Secretary Blinken described both Greiner and Whelan as political hostages. U.S. policy is to make no concessions to individuals. Greiner was exchanged for Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. He was nicknamed the Merchant of Death. He had served nearly 11 years of a 25-year sentence in the United States on charges including conspiring to kill Americans. Many Republicans are criticizing the swap. We should have never released Victor Boot. It was a dangerous concession of Vladimir Putin, and it will set a dangerous precedent going forward. Prosecuted Boot in his role as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Accused armed dealer Victor Boot begins to face American justice. The so-called merchant of death is now a federal inmate. No one should ever think that he can plot to kill Americans with impunity. And Preet Bharara joins me now. Preet, welcome to Meet the Press. Good to be here. Um, let me start with uh, what you can tell us about Victor Boot. How dangerous of a man is he? Dangerous man. I don't know who that young guy was. You had him <laughs> on the screen a moment ago. He looked good. He said, I don't recognize, I don't yeah. recognize that Promising person. future in television. <laughs> um, look, everyone is happy, if you're an American or not an American, that Brittany Griner, who is, I think, unfairly and illegitimately detained in Russia, is back home with her family. We're happy for her. We're ha <clears throat> happy for her family. At the same time, you might imagine that not as a, just a general prosecutor, but the prosecutor who oversaw the prosecution and conviction of Victor Boot has a view about how dangerous a person he was. He's, as you said, someone who was convicted at trial by unanimous jury of conspiracy to kill Americans. Uh, he was convicted of conspiracy to provide material support <clears throat> to terrorists. Uh, he's on tape with confidential informants planning to sell hundreds of surface-to-air air missiles to the FARC also sell 30,000 uh, AK-47s to the FARC for the stated purpose of shooting down American helicopters mm -hmm. in Colombia. So he's a dangerous man then. I don't know how dangerous he, <clears throat> he is now. Right. Presumably, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect and trust in the Biden administration, is his ability to engage in uh, trafficking of armaments at a time. We should have never released Victor Boot. It was a dangerous concession of Vladimir Putin, and it will set a dangerous precedent going forward. So what do these reactions tell you about where we are now? And does anyone benefit from politicizing this prisoner swap? It's really unfortunate. It's strategic rhetoric. And the thing about it is you cannot separate the role that identity is playing in this large international situation. Brittany Griner is a LGBTQIA black woman who is also a celebrity. So to politicize this, you're also bringing in race, you're bringing in gender, you know, you're bringing in um, uh, sexual preferences and all these things. So these are dog whistles. So we're still spinning the lie that there wasn't an option, even though it was reported. Preet Bahara, who used to be a principal juror, ju judge, but he became mega. And then you're a racist motherfucker if you think 
an WNBA player was worth a fucking terrorist. A fucking terrorist. I mean, for fuck's sake, people, come the fuck on. This would be, I mean, do you, you know what this would be like under Trump. This would just be fucking, the walls are closing in. He needs to be impeached. Because that motherfucker is going to kill people. It, it, it's just going to happen. Our next little foray is into what they're starting now because they're about to lose the house. And they're openly saying the following. And I just put it in that perspective. If it was a Republican admin. And we start with the latest around Hunter Biden. According to new reporting in the Washington Post, a coalition of Hunter's allies won't sit quietly as Republicans prepare to make him a national figure in their investigations when they take over the House in just a few weeks. For years, the GOP has claimed the president's son has traded on his name in shady business deals and that President Biden is culpable for his son's alleged misconduct. The Bidens have denied any wrongdoing. Joining me now is one of those allies, David Brock, president of Facts First USA. David, thank you very much for coming to the Sunday show. This has been asked and answered in 2020. It's been investigated ad nauseum. It's been looked at by a Senate committee, by Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal. They found nothing. So I met with Hunter Biden and his lawyers back in September as part of the due diligence for this project. And I came out of that, Jonathan, very confident that we are going to be able to show over time that this is nothing but a bunch of recycled conspiracy theories. Uh, And they're going to hurt themselves, I think, by investigating this, because at the end of the day, part of the story is is kind of a sick politics of demonizing addiction and Mm -hmm. and mental health issues and that that are in in many, many families. Uh, We know that the laptop shows that President Biden was an empathetic father trying to help his son. We don't need a congressional investigation for that, Jonathan, but we're unfortunately going to have one. And we're going to have one because Kevin McCarthy can't get to 218 votes. And so he's making this corrupt bargain, all these deals on the side with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gosar to have more aggressive investigations to change rules. Everything they want, they're getting, the MAGA extremists. Mm -hmm. And we need to educate the public about what's behind this. When I, maybe I've been watching too many episodes because I've been I've rewatched House of Cards. You know, I was a big Scandal fan, so my imagination is very big when it comes to these things. When I see the word, the phrase "going on offense," I go down some very. It's going to turn into Clinton Inc., folks. Bobolinsky's going to get killed. They're going to pressure all these people so they won't give up who the big guy is. And don't expect judges all over the land to start digging through everything Biden does like they're doing for Trump. And that's the problem with it, which forays into our next soundbite. How this motherfucker still gets to come on TV, that this sums up everything that's wrong with our media. I want to ask you about democracy here at home. As we mentioned, you were on that January 6th committee, and I understand you have a meeting today. Uh, Chairman Thompson had said at 1 p.m. there's going to be a sort of report passed from one group to the main committee about criminal referrals. Uh, Reportedly on that list, former President Trump, former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman. Is there a consensus 
on whether to send a referral for criminal prosecution to the Justice Department. And would doing that be anything more than symbolic? Uh, you know, I think we are in common agreement about what our approach should be. I'm not uh, ready or authorized at this point to tell you what that is. Uh, we are, as a subcommittee, um, several of us that were charged with making the recommendation about referrals, going to be making that recommendation to the full committee today. Um, we will be releasing our report, I think, around the 21st. Mm -hmm. uh, that will include whatever decision we've made on referrals. Um, what I can tell you about the process is we're looking at what is the quantum of evidence that we have against individuals? Uh, what is the impact of making a referral? Uh, are we going to create some suggestion by referring some that uh, others uh, there wasn't sufficient evidence? when we don't know, for example, what evidence is in the possession of the Justice Department. So if we do make referrals, we want to be very careful about how we, we do them. Um, but I, I think we're all certainly in agreement that there is evidence of criminality uh, here, uh, and we want to make sure that the Justice Department is aware of that. But don't we already know that? I mean, there is a Justice Department investigation. There's a special counsel looking into the former president. We know the DOJ has been looking into uh, Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani. So what does the committee sending a referral do other than look political? Well, uh, look, uh, we have been far out ahead in most respects of the Justice Department in conducting our investigation. I think uh, they have made use of the evidence that we have presented in open hearings. I think they'll make use of the evidence that we pre present in our report to further their investigations. Uh, and I think it makes an important statement, uh, not a political one, but a, a mm -hmm. statement about the evidence of an attack on the institutions of our democracy and the peaceful transfer of power that Congress examining an attack on itself is willing to report uh, uh, criminality. So I think it's an important decision in its own right mm -hmm. if we go forward with it um, and one that the department ought to give due consideration to. All right. Chairman Schiff, thank you for your time today. Thank you. So I do want to point out that you know who uh, what does that say? My brain just went. <laughs> there, uh, why aren't they 5,000 times more upset with you-know-who? Because you-know-who traded yep. for no one and gave 5,000 people. He gave 5,000 Taliban, right. Taliban yeah. guys yes, he did. and traded them that. for no one. Why? why so how that? come nobody's bitching about that? Yeah, well, it, was, it was, um, you know, it was, it was a darn thing to watch really that all of a sudden the right wing who had been silent on Paul Whelan for uh, the four years mm -hmm. all of a sudden came out Adam Schiff has gone out so many times says we have the proof we are going to arrest him we have the proof he did it with Russia 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 he's done it with January 6 he did it with every impeachment and they were all fucking lies and he's about to get yanked off the committee. So, of course, he's going to go out one last time. And they're doing this criminal referral shit for stuff that doesn't need to be criminally referred. And they're trying to pressure the DOJ. And even far lefties are going, you know, this is not a smart move. It's just not a smart move. Because the DOJ already looks political. They only go after January 6th people. They didn't go after fucking BLM. They damn sure didn't go after Jane's Revenge. For our next, Bill McGowan, the chief of U.S. Border Patrol, reports there have been over 16,000 migrant encounters at the border in the last 48 hours. That's 8,000 per day. 
Former Obama DHS Secretary Jim Johnson once said 1,000 is a crisis. We are eight times that now. Title 42 is about to end. And it takes Jake Tapper to ask somebody about the border. We'll have a Magoon soundbite. And this NBC, it appears, soundbite. But the invasion is getting worse. He'll set a new record. At this pace, he'll we'll have 30 million illegals in this country. And they got what they wanted. We can replace them. And one of the big complaints I hear from conservatives, from Republicans, is Democrats just don't take border security seriously. They just don't. Um, do you agree with that sentiment? And do you think there is an actual path forward there? Democrats are still going to have the majority in the next Senate. You can still get this on the floor of the Senate if you want. Well, as a native Arizonan who was born and raised near the southern border, I can tell you unequivocally that the federal government has failed its duty in the last 40 years. Not just Democrats. Not, it's just everyone. The federal government has failed here. And places like Arizona, front lines of this crisis, have been paying the price every single day since then. So for us, this isn't just a talking point of Team A versus Team B. This is our life every day. The reality is, is that when folks say, you know, We've got to just provide a legal path to citizenship for dreamers, which I support wholeheartedly. These kids are Americans in all but name. So when folks say we've got to do that, I agree. And when folks say we've got to secure the border, of course I agree. You know, my state is suffering from the failure to do so for 40 years. So this is a perfect example of why I'm so frustrated with partisanship that has gripped our nation and the parties are pulling folks away. It's not either or, it's and. Both of those concerns are real and valid. And we as a government have a duty to solve both of those concerns. We're going to turn out of the southern border into the growing lines and growing concern. The new images coming in tonight, hundreds of migrants crossing into the U.S. carrying children across the Rio Grande to reach El Paso, Texas. Tonight, amid high numbers already, what's driving this newest surge and why authorities warn it might soon get worse? ABC's Matt Rivers on the border for us tonight. These are the scenes in the shadow of downtown El Paso. Hundreds of migrants crossing the Rio Grande in a matter of hours overnight. Many forced to spend the night on the riverbank, burning whatever they could find for warmth. 
There are hundreds of people lined up on the other side of this river here. I've been coming to this exact spot in Ciudad Juarez for years now covering migration. I've never seen anything quite like this. Border Patrol officials telling ABC News they are at capacity and have to send migrants elsewhere along the border. Unauthorized border crossings in El Paso are now averaging more than 2,400 arrests and detainments per day. Today, adults carrying children through the river, this ahead of next week's possible end of Title 42, a Trump-era policy that allows for the immediate expulsion of migrants without allowing them to seek asylum. Now, the thing that's most disgusting about all this, this is that our media care more about those illegal immigrants than they do you and I because we're Christian pieces of shit. It goes back to the entering, enter, the, the, the entrance to this podcast. A bill that will just infringe on Christians, Jews, and Catholics, and Muslims, by the way, who toss gay people off roofs, execute them for sucking dick. You're evil. They're better people because they'll vote Democrat. They'll get in the pipeline for everything free and worship the Dems. Our next one, before we actually get into a subject, sorry, I had five up front. I'm sitting here before you, finishing an allergy test where I do not have food allergy. On two types of antacids, a nausea pill, an antispasmodic, which... I'm not going to be able to get any more, so I'm really in big trouble on that. A nerve pill, and I'm popping Benadryl like Tic Tacs to keep my stomach stable. But the Fauci tour keeps going around. And it's still the same old shit. You shouldn't celebrate Christmas. You should all lock in. Nothing this man said was true. Any other person on the planet would be a pariah. He once again fucked up AIDS. He killed beagles. He told you not to wear a mask. It was a noble lie then to wear a mask. That mask work, and when they, we know they don't work, he said you get the vaccine, you won't get the freaking illness. There are no side effects. All of it false. But he's still allowed to go out and run his fucking cock trap. Here we are going into the third year of it, and we are still Mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic with the numbers that you just showed. We're still in a pandemic. Then why is Title 42 going away? If we're still in a pandemic... Why did the President of the United States say the pandemic was over and we won? Why? I'm just asking. I've said it probably a thousand times on this podcast, and I know I'm repetitive, but what he and the Democrats have done are going to kill millions of people in the future because nobody trusts anything anymore. They politicize this so bad that nobody will get the vax because everybody knows somebody that got a vax fucking complication now. Everybody who did get the vax got COVID. 
They lied so much, they ruined the science, as they would say. So, Twitter 5 came out, and as expected, Armenia covered uh, none of it. Um, Fox covered a lot, but I want to show you what, um, well, yeah, I showed you the zero, zero, but this was by Grabian and Grabian Media tracked this. ABC News from the 2nd to the 12th, zero. CBS, zero. 13 mentions on CNN, 374 mentions on Fox, NBC, zero. MSNBC, 17, all negative, and it'll be Morning Joe, you're about to hear. Uh, NBC News, so what was that other one? I can't read that. NBC 7 in California, huh? Um, NBC News, once Newsmax, 291. They, they just ignored it. They, they didn't do it. And I thought what was really funny is that a media company owned by Dan Abrams, which is totally liberal, carried this soundbite, which I thought was fucking hilarious. It's pretty fucking good if you think about it. Um, there was a little sound loss there. They don't. They didn't. Ha- They're just saying this is everything. The biggest story I did find is that Yoel Roth, and this was all over the place this weekend. Yoel Roth literally had to leave his house because he was in danger. So he said. So the media was all up in arms on that. They were very upset. It was not good at all. MSNBC decided to once again cover the stochastic terrorism angle. Right now, Elon Musk is very deliberately cultivating an extreme far-right audience, and very specifically, an anti-trans audience, an audience that has been whipped up by this trans panic, by Twitter accounts like Libs of TikTok, run by Chaya Rychik, and um, Gays Against Groomers, that they use these slurs to try to dehumanize trans Americans and trans individuals abroad and say that they are uh, they're predatory towards children. And what they're doing is they're they're taking this like QAnon myth, the like 
Pizzagate uh, pedophile uh, conspiracy theory that guys like Jack Posobiec uh, were promoting, again, someone who was at the Young Republicans Club in New York. And they're mainstreaming it uh, all, all through what has become one of the most, whether we like it or not, important social media platforms in existence. I'm- you know, it's, it's, it's in line with what I saw um, yesterday morning. I went to go get a soda for the wife and i saw the papers it was the tennessean and it was the usa today and basically there was a headline that read anti-drag show violence coast to coast oh it's my new shirt i don't know if you can see it probably can't chicks dig the beard i love it um and that one of them referenced 7,800 different incidents of some kind of violence towards drags. Now, the, the coolest thing about it is, not the coolest, but I mean, the, the best part is, where's the video? I mean, I, I'll show you this. This is the only video. I went and looked for video for anti-drag show violence. And this is what I found. Yes, boys and girls, those are Democrats protesting some conservatives doing something. That's all I could find. There was no pictures. There was no video. There was nothing on CNN and MSDNC. Twitter didn't have a threat on it. There was nothing showing this violence. So with the Yoel Roth, I'm assuming, in his case too, I just second. Words are violence. So I'm sure for Yoel Roth waking up one morning and having the entire world realize that you're a fucking Napoleon complex tin pot third world dictator that was deciding on the fly and being happy about how far you could take it. Then once you banned Trump, you wanted to go after everybody. Power hungry prick. And people are saying, what a prick. That must feel like violence because you were untouchable. You were beloved by the media. So I'm sure a lot of people saying, hey, I'm not taking my kids there or my kids don't need this. Or why is there a dude with dick? I mean, I'm going to play a soundbite. These are the ones I could find that cover it. And of course, they're from Fox. And I'm going to show you a picture. So there wasn't going to be a picture, but I'm going to show you a picture of what they think is good for kids. In a Fox News alert, more stunning developments as the latest batch of Twitter files are released last night. 
We are now seeing more evidence of how top Twitter execs relied on their own personal political bias to make major decisions about controlling content. Alexandria Hoff joins us live in Washington, D.C. on the latest. Alexandria. Well, good morning, 2-3. Yeah, this has been the underlying story, the trickle-up effect, when 99% of staff at a company leans passionately in the same political direction, as was the case with Twitter. In this latest thread, the Twitter files opened up by new CEO Elon Musk were passed on to author Michael Schellenberger. Now, in a lengthy uh, Twitter thread, he shows how Twitter executives created justifications to ban then-President Trump from the platform. Also, how Twitter's former CEO Jack Dorsey was somewhat removed in this pursuit, but eventually gave in to his staff. Schellenberger writes this, quote, on January 7th, Jack, meaning Dorsey, emails employees saying Twitter needs to remain consistent in its policies, including the right of users to return to Twitter after a temporary suspension after Roth reassures an employee that people who care about this aren't happy with where we are. Now, the name Roth refers to Yoel Roth, the company's former safety chief, who played a critical role in suppressing the New York Post reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop. Schellenberger continues, quote, Progress, exclaims a member of Roth's trust and safety team. The exchange between Roth and his colleagues makes clear that they had been pushing Jack Dorsey for greater restrictions on the speech Twitter allows around elections. Then, around 11.30 a.m. Pacific time, Roth DMs his colleagues with news that he is excited to share. Guess what, he writes. Jack just approved repeat offender for civic integrity. The new approach would create a system where five violations or strikes would result in permanent suspension. This new approach prompted colleagues to reach out. They were confused. Schellenberger shared, quote, around noon, a confused senior executive in advertising sales sends a DM to Roth. He, the sales exec says, Jack says we will permanently suspend Trump if our policies are violated after a 12-hour account lock. What policies is Jack talking about? Roth, any policy violation. So there are a lot of whims there, and we are expecting uh, a new batch to be released today. That's going to detail the inner workings, the inner dialogues that happened the following. A fifth installment of Twitter files drops, revealing some Twitter staffers did not believe then-President Trump violated the platform's incitement policy in the aftermath of the January 6th Capitol riot. Nonetheless, employees began building their case to boot the president off the social media site, seemingly in part over public pressure to do so. The latest revelation is getting massive backlash from free speech advocates, but still not getting a ton of coverage on other channels or outlets. Independent journalist Barry Weiss tweeted today, on the morning of January 8, President Donald Trump, with one remaining strike before being at risk of permanent suspension from Twitter, tweets twice. At 6.46 a.m., the president tweeted about the 75 million people who voted for him, noting they will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. And then Weiss reveals internal debate from unnamed Twitter staffers about whether that was incitement. Weiss notes, after January 6, Twitter employees organized to demand their employer ban Trump. Quote, there's a lot of employee advocacy happening, said one Twitter employee. There was some internal pushback. Quote, maybe because I am from China, said one employee on January 7, I deeply understand how censorship can destroy the public conversation. Weiss also notes Twitter's lack of reaction to some foreign leaders' controversial tweets. Weiss adds, Annika Navaroli, a Twitter policy official, admits to not seeing clear or coded incitement in the DJT tweet. Less than 90 minutes later, Vijay Gadi, 
then head of policy and trust appears persistent and was met with suggestions from employees that Trump's tweet may have violated Twitter's glorification of violence policy. So this was at the White House. The kids are out to sing and suck D. That was at the White House for the marriage. And remember, all these people are good people. These are the people Twitter protected. These are the people that de-plat- you got deplatformed because you misgendered. These are the good people. You're the bad people. That, that's how it works. This fucking, f- what is that? What the fuck is that? I mean, I'm all about you do you. I'm cool with that. But when you're involving kids, what the fuck, Chuck? So instead of actually covering it, you're going to hear Morning Joe laughs about it. But this is what our media covered. And there was a fifth one that came out. Every one of these showing collusion with federal agencies, the Biden campaign, the Biden administration, Breaking the Constitution into a million pieces to shut you up. I have a politics, the media jerk off of the week. Frank, is it too soon to draw any connection between hate crimes that are targeting race, sexual orientation, or gender identity, and attempts to ban books on these very topics? Because proponents of banning books often say, oh, we're just doing it to keep people safe. But that's happening while you are seeing a rise in hate crimes in these specific areas. Out there sitting at home, if you're out there sitting at home worried about your oh home heating oil, out there sitting at home, if you're out there sitting at home worried about your oh home heating oil, out there sitting at home, if you're out there sitting at home worried about your oh home heating oil. You know, Joe, there's, there seems to be a consensus that Kevin McCarthy is of limited ability. And he has made so many deals thus far. Just listening to Brendan reminded me of this. He's made so many deals thus far over the past three or four years in his pursuit of becoming speaker that he can no longer remember what deals he made. If you want to know the future of the Republican Party, as you were discussing quite articulately last hour, take a look at the cover of the New York Post this morning, Eyes on the Spies. And it's the Republicans' intention Kevin McCarthy's intention to subpoena 51 former members of the American intelligence community. Good morning, I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. This past week, Forbes magazine named House Speaker Nancy Pelosi one of the 100 most powerful women in the world. That might be an understatement. Nancy Pelosi is our 52nd Speaker of the House, the first woman to hold the job, and second in line to the presidency. In a few weeks, she steps back from that role while still representing the people of San Francisco in Congress. In a world of lies, conspiracies, and divisive rhetoric, it is sometimes a tough call on which ones to give oxygen to and which ones to ignore. But this morning, a sitting U.S. Congresswoman suggests that if she had been in charge of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the crowds would have been armed 
and they would have, quote, won the insurrection. Speaking at an event hosted by the New York Young Republican Club, Marjorie Taylor Greene said this, watch. I come to Washington, I swear in on January 3rd, I get accused of giving insurrection tours, which I thought was hilarious because I couldn't even find the bathroom in the Capitol. True story. Then January 6th happens, and next thing you know, I organize the whole thing along with Steve Bannon here. And I want to tell you something, if Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. Not to mention, it would have been armed. See, that's the whole joke, isn't it? They say that whole thing was planned, and I'm like, are you kidding me? A bunch of conservative Second Amendment supporters went in the Capitol without guns, and they think that we organized that? I don't think so. Well, those are interesting comments, to say the least, considering how she felt during the attack. Green messaged White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and I quote here. For now, the, Democratic, the victorious Democratic coalition of the last, I'd say, 18, 20, 22, so three cycles in a row, Donald Trump's played a huge part in it. If, right, I would, if Donald Trump is not, is not there, how concerned are you about carrying places like an Arizona and a Georgia? Well, I watched the Sunday shows, and yeah, it, it was all about Trump, 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 Trump. That, that was the entire fucking meet the press, so... Twitter 5, Barry Weiss. On the morning of January 8th, President Trump, with one remaining strike before being on a risk of permanent suspension from Twitter, tweets twice. 646, the 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first, to make America great, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. 744, to all of those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. For years, Twitter had resisted calls, both internal and external, to ban him. Our mission is to provide a forum that enables people to be informed and engaged in the leaders directly, the company wrote in 2019. Twitter aim was to protect the public rights to hear from their leaders and hold them account. But after January 6th, Matt Talibi and Schellenberger have documented pressure grew. There were dissenters inside Twitter, maybe because I'm from China, uh, partially from the last one, same lady. But voices like that one appeared to have been distinct minority within the company across Slack channels. After January 6th, Twitter employees organized to demand their employer ban Trump. There's a lot of employee advocacy happening. This is an elephant in the room. It feels like Twitter policy is engaged with someone acting in bad faith and we won't acknowledge it. If Alex Jones was shut down for you... Get your battle rifles. He's far exceeded that. Blah, blah, blah. We've had to do the right thing and ban this account, said one staffer. It's pretty obvious he's going to try to thread the needle. In the early afternoon of January 8th, the Washington Post published an open letter signed by over 300 Twitter employees demanding Trump's ban. But the Twitter staff assigned to evaluate threats quickly concluded that Trump had not violated any policy. I think we'd have a hard time saying he did. It's pretty clear he's saying that American patriots are the one who voted for him and not the terrorists. We can call them that, right? Another staffer agreed. Don't see the incitement angle. I'm also seeing clear or coded incitement in the DJT tweets, wrote Annika Norvali, a Twitter policy official, I'll respond in the election channels and say that our team has assessed and found no VIOS for DJT. 
She does just that, and as FYI, safety is assessed the DJT tweets above and determined that there is no violation. Later, Navaroli would testify to the House January 6th committee. For months, I had been begging and anticipating and attempting to raise the reality that if nothing, if we made no intervention into what I saw occurring, people were going to die. Violence. God, these people. They're so sensitive. I mean, I'm a sensitive guy. I am a feelings hurt the older I get. But these people, they're all in with their feelings. Next Twitter safety team decides that Trump's 7444 AM tweet is also not in violation. To understand Twitter's decision to ban Trump, we must consider how Twitter deals with other heads of states and political leaders. Iran, Nigeria, Ethiopia. In June 18, Iran's Anatolia Committee tweeted Israel is in a malignant cancerous tumor in the West Asia region and has to be removed. Twitter didn't delete it or ban him. In 2020 October, Malaysian Prime Minister said it was a right for Muslims to kill millions of French people. Twitter deleted his tweet for glorifying violence, but he remains on the platform. And in the Wayback Machine, you can see this. Million Muslims have the right to be angry and kill millions of French. It's still online. Remember, I got 12 hours for saying gender dysphoria and Article 15, and I'm almost 100% sure the idiot thought it was gone. Mohamed Bukhari, and president of Nigeria, incited violence against pro-Bahrainian groups, or Bahafri, or whatever the fuck. Those of us in the fields for 30 months who went through the war, he wrote, will treat them in the language they understand. Twitter deleted the tweet, but not him. In 2021, Twitter allowed Ethiopian Prime Minister Aloy Ahmad to call on citizens to take up arms against Tigray region. Twitter allowed the treat to remain up and did not do anything to him. In early February 2021, Prime Minister Narendra Modi government threatened to arrest Twitter employees in India and to incarcerate them for up to seven years as they restored the hundreds of accounts that had been critical of him. Twitter did nothing. But Twitter executives did ban Trump, even though the key staffer said that Trump hadn't done anything. Less than 90 minutes after Twitter employees had determined that Trump's tweets were not in violation of Twitter policy, Vijay God, Twitter head of legal policy, asked whether it could be, in fact, be coded incitement for further violence. Because everything's code. It's all dog whistle. Remember, if you don't say what they want you to say, they say it's, you're thinking it. It's all thought crimes now. We're living in minority report. You know I'm right. A few minutes later, Twitter employees on the scaled enforcement team suggest that Trump's tweet may have violated Twitter's glorification of violence policy. And remember, this violence policy is just vague. That's what I got banned for 12 hours for. I was inciting violence by saying gender dysphoria or Article 15. Things escalate from there. Members of the team came to view him as a leader of a terrorist group. Responsible for violent death comparable to Christchurch shooter or Hitler and on the basis of the totality of his tweets. This is an actual, just update to you, blank I spoke to I just now. They understand our assessment of individual tweets, um, but they now view him as the leader of a terrorist group responsible for violence deaths compared to church, Christchurch shooter of Hitler. And of that basis and onto the totality of his tweets, he should be deplatformed. Two hours later, Twitter executives hosted a 30-minute all-staff meeting. Dorsey, Vajay answered staff questions on why Trump wasn't banned, but they made some employees angrier. Multiple tweets 
have quoted the banality of evil, suggesting that people implementing our policies are like Nazis following orders. And for some reason, it stops there. And I, I know there's more. 31, here we go. Dorsey requested simpler language to explain Trump's suspension. Roth wrote, God help us. This makes me think he wants to share it publicly. Yoel Roth is a really bad employee. One hour later, Twitter announces Trump's permanent suspension due to the risk of further incitement violence. Many at Twitter were escalated. There's a whole thread of yays and thank God that they don't believe in. And congratulatory big props to whoever in trust safety is sitting there whack-a-moling these Trump accounts. By the, net, by the next day, employees expressed eagerness to tackle medical misinformation as soon as possible. For the longest time, Twitter's stance was that we aren't the arbiter of truth, wrote another employee, which I respected, but never gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling. Twitter CEO Preg Arwala, who would later succeed Dorsey as CEO, told the head of security Mudge Zotko, I think a few of us should bar- brainstorm the ripple effect of Trump's ban. Argoal added, centralized content moderation, in my opinion, has reached a breaking point. Outside the United States, Twitter decision to ban Trump raised alarms, including Macron, uh, Angela Merkel, and Andres Manuel Lopez. Macron told the audience he didn't want to live in a democracy that key decisions were made by private players. Merkel's spokesperson called Twitter's decision to ban Trump from its platform problematic and a freedom of opinion is of elementary significance. Whether you agree with the Navalry of Macron or executives of Twitter, we hope this latest installment, Twitter 5, gives you insight or an unprecedented decision. From the outset, our goal is to investigate the story, discover and document the steps leading up to ban a Trump. Ultimately, the concerns about Twitter effort to censor news about Hunter Biden's laptop, blacklist of disfavored views, and ban on president aren't about the past choices of executive and social media companies. They're about the power of a handful of people at a private company to influence public discouraging democracy. This was reported by these people. Please click here, describe for the free press, which I tell you to do, because she's going to do some good stuff there. Why is this important? Google at it again, search giant favored Warnock in search results and push down Walker. Ex-Twitter security head Peter Zotko explosive whistleblower complaint reveals far worse. Former Twitter security executive Peter Mudge Zocco says that he broached the topic of foreign assets working at Twitter to another executive who brushed off his concern. And he was there and there's whole bunch of that thread that shows it's not good. Noam Bloom takes Twitter file deniers claim it's all just a mega conspiracy in a beautiful thread. Um, the talking past each other flavor of today is that it was known that Twitter could do stuff to your tweets and to the private company they were allowed to do it, but they also denied doing this to the extent. That's the revelatory part. So the idea that this is well-reported is dodged. The existence of certain abilities and the freedom to use them are separate matter from what Twitter executives and their media cheerleaders insisted was happening. I know you're morally afraid of losing the Joy Reid spot if you give any ammo to the bad people, but it's okay to acknowledge Twitter was a shitty, biased place with the inner ideological moderation without becoming mega. And it and it's true. 
NBC, the only thing they covered was liberal angst due to unwillingness to leave Twitter. Alexander Vidman's one of the big ones. I'd put Fauci's reputation against this fool Musk anytime. Twitter is dying. That's okay. If anything is need to be killed off soonest, Elon Musk cannot be allowed to promote dangerous radical views, hate speech. Imagine Goebbels with a bigger platform. My pronoun is prosecute Elon Musk. Um, He came out this weekend and... um, he said, prosecute Fauci. The left did not like it. But Vinman um, specifically, well, here, here's, here, here's all of his. Um, and musky Twitter. Uh, Twitter, Tesla, all of the Elon Musk holdings are all extremely exposed to his toxicity. It's just a matter of time before he drags down the assets. Advertisers, investors, stockholders must be getting very nervous. Move post Mastodon, anything. Twitter is dead. I put Falky. It's one I just read. It was a whole thing. He was just really fucking... Um, there's John Dean wants to sue Twitter. Um... The Goebbels one, and I have so much, I'm trying not to cover everything, um, was the one I just read that, you know, it's, they always do that. His wife um, got in on the beat. To tweet or not to tweet, that is the question. Many left-leaning and Elon Musk-loathing political influencers are debating often Twitter. Rachel Vindman. Are you attacking me because I have so many more followers than you? Sorry that made you sad. You know nothing about me, which is apparent by your description of me as a liberal activist. Pathetic journalism, brah. Because somebody called her out because she's one of them. Um, Here's another Vinman. And I'm not doing hot takes today, but it was my hot takes file. It's all the same stuff. He's just a a case in point. He's an object lesson of how bad our officer corps is in the military. I mean, he was not an objective person looking at Trump. He was an activist, and he went after Trump. So that, once again, shows that impeachment, what most of us thought was bullshit. Because Obama straight on a mic said, hey, after the election, I'll do a deal with you. I mean, you didn't have a problem with that. John Donovan, or Joanne Donovan, to be completely honest, the real scandal of the Twitter file isn't about what they reveal about Twitter relationship with government, but shows exactly what the Facebook file illustrated. These platforms are open to manipulation and bias because they're human. And it's true. I think most of these lefties just don't realize what it was on the other foot. What if it was conservatives in charge and everything was bent to conservative lean? You wouldn't like it. Caitlin, a Randall, random person, I just like this one. The right and the left both agree to some extent that John Brennan lied to Congress. He should have been fired and stripped of his security clearance long before Donald Trump ever did it. And he also deserves jail time for lying under oath. This is to the key point of all these people went up and lied. They, they just lied. James Batchikari. I spent the afternoon yesterday at Twitter HQ and the, on the invitation of Leon Musk to find out more about the trend blacklist that Twitter placed me and more 
a short thread on what I found. So this is a person that was affected. Twitter 1.0 placed me on a blacklist on the first day I joined in August 2021. I think it was my pinned tweet linking to the, the uh, Barrington Declaration. Twitter 1.0 rejected requests for verification by me and Martin Kudoff. Each time the reasoning never conveyed to us was that we were not notable enough. They should have asked Francis Collins. He would have vouched for our standings. It was. It will take some time to find out more about what led Twitter to act so imperiously, but I am grateful that Musk was promised access and help. I will report the results on Twitter 2.0 when I see it. I think it's really important in all of this to understand these people were running a major company that had become, because of the way the media treats it. I mean, they don't report anymore. They get it all off Twitter. It was an important place. And that guy was running it. The Fauci, Elon Musk pronoun thing is very interesting because, you know, they're calling him a Nazi now. But this is this is the majority opinion. So I found one that kind of my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. Elon Musk, Elon, please don't mock or promote hate towards already marginalized and at-risk violence member of the LGBTQ plus community. They're real people with real feelings. Furthermore, Darka Fauci is dedicated public servant whose sole motivation was saving lives. Now, let's tear that apart just for two seconds before Elon did. How are they a marginalized community? They're an amplified community. They get special treatment everywhere. We're pushing them into every one of our shows. We're even pushing trans actors, non-binary actors into everything from ads to Hallmark movies. They have 85 days in the years they get to celebrate. All of us get fired or deplatformed if we miss gender. And there is still no proof of violence. You come up with like 35 incidents every year and you say there's a uh, genocide and all that shit, you know, that Elizabeth Warren and them say. But then you look and it's domestic violence. Their spouse killed them. It wasn't a rando mega guy running around beating up on the fags. That wasn't something that happens. But you portray it as that. Because once again, it's that protective bubble you can't criticize. And people like this motherfucker, it's all violence because he's gay. So because he's gay, it's violence to criticize his life. But yet they spend 95% of their time criticizing cis, Christians, gun owners, name it. It is the woke identity politics 101. We're going to protect ourselves. Then the Fauci, we already covered it in Soundbite 6. This motherfucker lied about everything. So Elon, I strongly disagree. Forcing your pronouns upon others when they don't ask and implicitly ostracizing those who don't is neither good nor kind to anyone. As for Fauci, he lied to Congress and funded gain-of-function research that killed millions of people. Not awesome. And he's spot on. Spot on. CNN um, 
And let me see if I have the tweet. It is the Twitter, Twitter former head of trusted safety has fled his home due to an escalation in threats resulting from Elon Musk's campaign of criticism against him. A person familiar with the matter told CNN. Somebody, a guy named Matrix Forest, you literally tracked down a kid for making this wrestling meme gif and threatened to dox him if he did it again. That was what CNN did. But from their article on this guy, Twitter forward ahead of trust's safety has fled his home due to an escalation and threats resulting from Elon Musk's campaign of criticism against him. A person familiar with the matter told him. Is that just not a loaded sentence? Yoel Roth resigned from social media company in November as in recent weeks faced a storm of attacks and threats of violence following the release of so-called Twitter files by journalist Talibi and Barry Weiss, who are horrible people. They didn't get Schellenberger in there yet when they wrote this. Roth's position involved in working sensitive. He banned Trump's account. Roth has since been subject to criticism and threats following the release of the Twitter files. Things took a dark turn over the weekend when Musk appeared to endorse a tweet that basically accused Roth of being sympathetic for pedophilia. It's true. A person familiar with Roth's situation told CNN uh, threats made against a former Twitter employee escalated exponentially after Trump's engaged in pedophilic conspiracy theory. It's not the first time Roth has found himself in public eye. Tweets posted by Roth in 1617 that were critical of then-President Trump and his supporters were later surfaced and used to argue that Roth and Twitter are biased against President. Among Roth's tweet was he wrote a Election Day 2016. I'm just saying we fly over these states that voted for racist tangerine for a reason. We cover that on the show. Twitter defended Roth at the time saying no one person at Twitter is responsible for policies. When Roth still working at Twitter in October, Musk was asked about Roth's whole tweet. We've all made some questionable tweets, blah, 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 blah. Now, once again, in here, no proof. There, there's no concrete evidence there was any threats. They just, they just get to say it. I mean, never mind how many people have been threatened by the media and had to leave their home or gun owners docks because they own guns, or the myriad of things we've done since Obama. That, that's not a problem, though. Twitter files overshadow the bigger scandal. FBI lied to tech giants to interfere in election. And I think that's the part that the media that are ignoring this just really, really suck. All right? You, you really suck. Because that's the point. The point is, we had collusion from the government into an election, which makes my picture that I post every fucking podcast, and I will do again. This is what it's about. They rigged an election. Facebook paid, ran polling and harvesting, Twitter and Google suppressed. And the federal government was working with them doing it. And like I said last show, you can say, oh, it was Trump administration. No, this just shows that all those conspiracy theorists who said that they were shadow banning people are, are true. And all the people that said there's a deep state were also true. And even I scoffed at those people. I was like, oh, whatever. But it, but it happened. 
So a guy that's done it very well, I'm going to play an eight-minute soundbite. I know that's long, but Glenn Greenwald's been pretty solid, and he's a liberal. And then we're going to go into a short, woke section. Since Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, the social media platform that was once known for tranquility and respect uniform civility and a deep abiding commitment to protecting so-called marginalized groups has instantly transformed virtually overnight into a cesspool of hate and bigotry, a dark and despotic sewer of demons, Nazis, and ghouls from the underworld. That's if you believe a curiously well-coordinated set of messaging from top Democratic politicians and liberal establishment influencers and celebrities, and most of all, from the corporate press. On November 24th, the Washington Post published a suitably neurotic and unstable headline to sit atop the article by its supremely neurotic and unstable columnist, Taylor Lorenz, that warned, and I'm not joking, that Musk's purchase of Twitter meant we were, quote, opening the gates of hell. That same message has been strongly echoed, reinforced in almost every sector of the liberal corporate media, with the New York Times running a story earlier this month headline, quote, hate speech's rise on Twitter is unprecedented, researchers find. As we showed you in our opening monologue, Adam, Adam Schiff de, de, uh, demanded some kind of unspecified action based on the same unsubstantiated claim that Twitter was now exploding in hate speech. The message implicit, often explicit, in this narrative could not be clear. A Musk-owned Twitter needs more government scrutiny and censorship, and corporate advertisers should abstain from spending their ad dollars on such a radioactive platform until Musk falls into line. Now, we hope this doesn't shock you, but sometimes corporate media narratives may be motivated by something other than a magnanimous concern for your safety and well-being. After all, the finance departments of these corporate media outlets themselves desperately compete for these same corporate advertisers that, with their purported journalism, they are trying to demonstrate cannot allow their brands to be associated with Twitter's new status as a virtual Nazi newspaper. We have ex uh, obtained some exclusive documents from one particular news outlet providing a revealing example of just how compromised and corrupted the mainstream corporate media can be, not necessarily in ideological ways, but even in very banal ways when reporting on stories. The story revolves around Axios, a medium company founded in 2016 by two former Washington Post reporters, Mike Allen and Jim Vandehei, who first went on to found the very commercialized Politico before leaving to found the similarly commercialized Axios, where, as was and is, and is true of Politico, there's virtually no article that appears that doesn't have corporate sponsorship adorning it from the very institutions of power they purport to report on. Mike Allen has claimed he has no ideology whatsoever, and the two have billed Axios as a totally nonpartisan alternative to traditional news media, offering short, bare-bones articles in the form of newsletters. Upon founding the site, Jim Vandehei even, even stated that he wanted his company to be, quote, a mix between The Economist and Twitter. Now, it's clear that Axios still sees at least some significant overlap between itself and Twitter, because shortly after Elon Musk take over the company, Axios CEO Jim Vandehei began privately trying to poach Twitter advertisers by pitching his company as a, quote, brand-safe alternative to Twitter, insinuating that Twitter had become too inhospitable and too risky for advertisers to safely be associated with. <laughs> 
But at the same time that Axios was making these, this pitch in these emails, it was using its journalistic platform to publish one hit piece after the next on Twitter, depicting it as unsafe in various ways, especially for corporate advertisers, without once disclosing the glaring conflict of interest and how these journalistic attacks on Twitter were helping its secret attempts to induce Twitter's advertisers to leave Twitter for Axios. As soon as this narrative emerged that Twitter was no longer safe for corporate advertisers, Van de Heij began citing, citing that narrative that Axios helped create to urge leading corporations to leave Twitter. His email read, quote, Hey, Jim Van de Heij here, CEO of Axios. I'd love to hop on the phone to walk you through how our platform is a well-lit alternative to Twitter. He, then he, he went on to explain all the things that his media outlet was saying, quote, most big companies advertise aggressively on Axios because we reach millions of smart, engaged professionals with top shelf content. We prohibit all opinion content because it's too toxic and polarizing, making our platform an extremely brand safe environment. Our, quote, smart brevity ads consistently outperform our rivals because we work with companies like yours to pick the perfect headline, story, and visual to engage our elite audience. In other words, telling corporate advertisers they will conform Axios' reporting to make it the perfect environment for corporate advertisers to be welcome. Just a day before that email was sent, Axios ran a piece slamming Elon Musk's advertiser push, explicitly criticizing Musk's layoff decisions and quoting from a battery of critical marketing executives who were concerned that Musk wasn't sufficiently, quote, committing to content moderation policies and enforcements. The article said, quote, ad agency's executives told Axios that in the wake of reports about an uptick of hate speech on the platform, they are advising clients to pause advertising for now. Going out of their way to ensure the cards are stacked against Musk, their strictly, quote, nonpartisan reporting declared, quote, the bottom line, it's Musk's behavior more than activist pressure on its own that's driving marketers to proceed cautiously with Twitter. The next day, it was these very same marketers that Axios CEO Jim Van de Heij sought to, quote, hop on the phone with to explain how Axios and its marketing subsidiary could serve as a, quote, well-lit alternative to Twitter. Shamelessly, with article after article over the next month, Axio did its very best to paint Twitter and its new management in the most negative light possible, casting the platform as a glitch-ridden mess and always paying special attention to unsatisfied advertisers, claiming, quote, advertisers are especially worried about a lack of oversight from trust and safety teams that monitor hate speech and misinformation on the platform, and emphasizing, quote, reports beginning to emerge, suggesting that Twitter's back-end technology isn't working right. They frequently echo claims of, quote, lives being at risk of Musk's decision to reinstate accounts that hadn't broken the law or engaged in spam, Axios warned the policy was, quote, another risky bet by Twitter's free speech espousing owner that he can dial back enforcement of content rules without releasing a torrent of racism, anti-Semitism, and anti-LGBTQ speech that could further erode the service's already shaky advertising base, never missing a chance to drum up more advertising panic and then turning around and using that panic to lure advertisers away from Twitter to Axios. Just today, Axios tweeted out an article entitled, Elon Musk, Year of Losing, which described Twitter under Musk as a, quote, train wreck. 
Axios did not respond to our request for comments on this glaring conflict of interest in its journalism where they were simultaneously sending out emails to corporate advertisers tracking their exact journalistic narrative about how Twitter can no longer safely accommodate advertisers. Oftentimes, corporate media outlets feed you narratives, deceitful narratives for purely ideological ends, but it's good to remember that other times they have deeply hidden motives that are about nothing other than their own interests. Turn it up, turn it on. Rock it like we fed to the bone, get on the floor, running loose. Gotta put these two left feet to use. If you need education in the part of scene, as you think you can dance with me, this ain't no joke. Turn up, let's get a walk. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. And the Emmy goes to... Heartstopper! Accepting the Emmy is Daniel Edwards. I've got a boyfriend. Oh, well, congratulations. No. It's... Okay. I don't even know if... I don't think he even thinks we're boyfriends anyway. He ignores me sometimes. He doesn't even like people seeing us talk to each other in the corridors. He pretends like he doesn't know who I am. So some stuff you're seeing um, is the work of previous teams. Um, for instance, a bunch of hashtags were recently removed for uh, surrounding child sexual abuse. Um, that was actually the work of a team that he laid off. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, there's, in terms of Having said that, I believe that Mr. DeLeo would make an excellent president. However, I feel that electing the only cis white male on this board president of this district sends the wrong message to our community, a message that is contrary to what we as a board have been trying to accomplish. I think that it's important that we practice what we preach and that our words have strength when they are spoken, whether we speak them from the neighborhood sidewalks or from behind these tables. Mrs. Steinbeck has done an exemplary job as president these last few months and the strength of her performance has earned her my vote tonight. Good morning, TikTok and happy Friday. <laughs> you know, I've been looking at these comments on my post from yesterday about Brittany Griner. And I am so tired of these saltine motherfucking settlers coming on my post with their bullshit rhetoric. Not but racism. Okay, if you got left behind and 
Black people in this country have gotten the short end of the stick for long enough. When are y'all saltines gonna realize that we like motherfucking graham crackers over here? Fucking stupid. I know that I'm probably gonna get ate up by this in the comment sections, but I really don't care because it's the truth. And a lot of y'all need to admit to yourselves that restrictive um, eating disorders are fat phobic. Like, y'all really be coming up on social media or just in real life talking about everybody's body's beautiful while being on your third day not eating. Like, that doesn't make no sense. If everybody's body is beautiful, how come yours isn't? How come fat people isn't? Because what you're is being fat. You're scared of being fat. You think fat people are disgusting. You think fat people are ugly. And you don't want to be fat. So you restrict yourself from eating because you think fat people are disgusting and don't deserve to live. So like, y'all will legitimately feel like you want to end your life because you don't want to be fat. That doesn't seem fatphobic to you. It doesn't? I have a thought. Now, I know the trolls are going to be like, uh-oh, she should have stopped there. But I'm not going to do that. So there's a lot of controversy about um, whether or not sex education, health education, relationships, gender, all that stuff should be taught in the classroom. Here's what I think. You, you as in parents, send their kids to school to learn math, reading, writing, history, science from a professional, right? But in the same token, a lot of people who do that also think that they're experts in sexuality education because they've had kids. With all due respect, just because you've had kids does not mean that you are a sexuality education expert. It does not mean you are an expert in sex. It does not mean you are an expert in the body. It does not mean you are an expert in gender. It does not mean you are an expert in relationships. So the same way that we're sending our kids to school to learn these skills, these life skills like math and quadratic equations and calculus and whatever else from a professional, we also need to be ensuring that our students are learning information about their health, about identity, about very complex issues from a professional. I mean, like, it, it makes sense. It makes sense. So to show you how much of a piece of shit all these people are, and it was a lot in there as a superintendent, you got that idiot awards for trannies and kids. I mean, there's fat phobia. There's a lot. These are tweets by Noel Roth. Can high school students ever meaningfully consent to sex with their teachers? I don't think that's good. I'm just guessing here. The next batch. Hey, he's seen me in less than that. Apparently the fur isn't enough. This should be a autorific, shouldn't it? Have no idea how to handle following people on autorific. Overlap with people I follow here. Only people likely tweet dirty things. Muscle beer, muscle bear with beard, hot muscle bear with beard holding a child inexplicably hotter. This person, oh, we already talked about that guy and that guy. This person is running for controller in Pittsburgh, PA, and to raise funds, she's doing a drag show. This is the kind of stuff our nuclear guy was into, and he did get fired finally. But that's that was his background before they 
hired him. S&M. This is a very good article, and I'm going to read this, even though we're long. Uh, let me try to... I might have to read the picture, because this is like font zero. Let me zoom in. Hold one. There we go. Garcia gave witness to a cardinal fact, one which the new cohorts of detransitioners, including several speaking alongside him, well understood. A new breed of affirming psychologists and clinicians were refusing on principle any gatekeeping of life-saving gender-affirming care. They affirmed every person who claimed a transgender identity and put them on a path to medification. They were doing so at the very moment an explosion of online influencers and communities were telling confused and impressionable young people that medical sex change was a magical cure-all. That a wide range of struggles around mental health, body acceptance, and identity were caused by their previously unknown transgender identity. Their message found an eager audience among young people already in the grips of identity crisis beyond the one co-expensive and adolescent itself, especially to where atypical gender non-conforming mentally ill young people to those suffering from depression, anxiety, eating disorders, personality disorders, and other afflictions of the mind which are rapidly being recast as symptoms of being born in the wrong body. Gender clinicians like the one Garcia initially visited would then bring to a close this self-referential cycle of online contagion by reflexively affirming the self-diagnosis of confused and impressionable young people under the influence of online peers. The contagion that was now burning through a growing fraction of American young did so in no small part by burning through its medical subspecialties and professionals first. We will be revisiting this enormous fact in the future stories. It was money. They prayed on it. Loudoun County Grand Jury indicts ousted Superintendent Scott Zegler following report on sexual response response. The family of the second person, and this one's horrible because it's literally a teacher saw that boy raping somebody and did nothing about it. father who got arrested spoke up. He's not too happy. This is happening in a school right now and parents don't even know because they don't tell them. Westchester County schools are and aren't telling parents about what children seeing on field trips and one of their field trips is literally going to see a drag show. One of the biggest um, the SF drag guy that the media used to say why we need to have transgenders in the army detransitioned. And he was on Tucker Carlson the other day. And for some reason, nobody's covering it. And on next show, I will play a soundbite of him talking and he's about being a guy and how he got brought up in to this agenda 
This is now Cambridge Dictionary. An adult who lives identifies as a female through they may have been said to have a different sex at birth. She was the first trans woman elected to national office. Mary is a woman who was assigned male at birth. They're not going to let it go. Army fitness test will be revamped again under pressure for gender neutral. But, um, yeah, we're not going to, we're not woke, she said. DOJ says they are targeting pro-life. Of course. Of course they are. Why why wouldn't they? Pro-life people are evil. Here is a soundbite of a congresswoman owning a trans activist, and it's glorious. Is rhetoric on social media a problem and a threat to our democracy, Mr. Ward? Yes, absolutely. Mr. Siegel? Yes. Ms. Carabayo? Yes. Ms. Numani? Yes. Ms. Tyler? Yes. Yes. Um, Another question I have. uh, Do you believe that rhetoric targeting officials with violence for carrying out their constitutional duties um, is a threat to democracy, Mr. Ward? Mr. Siegel? Yes. 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 All right. Thank you very much. Only a few weeks after the attempted attack on a Supreme Court justice on June 25th, one of the witnesses, Alejandra Caraballo, tweeted out the following in response to a decision on abortion overturning Roe v. Wade. And I'll quote directly from the tweet. The six justices who overturned Roe should never no peace again. It is our civic duty to accost them every time they're in public. They are pariahs. Since women don't have their rights, these justices should never have a peaceful moment in public again. I know something about being accosted. The night of January 5th, I was physically accosted on the streets of DC in Navy Yard by a constituent of mine. I fervently blamed rhetoric rhetoric on social media, rhetoric at public events, for being physically accosted. I carry a gun everywhere I go when I am in my district and I'm at home because I know personally that rhetoric has consequences. I've had my car keyed. I've had my house spray painted. I had someone trespass in my house as recently as August. I've been doxxed on social media about where I live. Um, And I've had to add to security everywhere I go, often because I can't afford it. I have to carry my own firearm wherever I go. And um, Alejandra Caraballo also recently tweeted on November 19th, not even a month ago, that the Supreme Court vested with the judicial power of the United States by our Constitution, stated they are not a legitimate court issuing decisions. And also the Supreme Court is an organ of the far right. So my last question today of Ms. Caraballo, do you stand by these comments, this kind of rhetoric on social media, and do you believe it's a threat to democracy? Thank you, Representative, for the opportunity to clarify and provide context to my tweets. Um, I have a question, is it yes or no? Do you believe your rhetoric is a threat to democracy when you're calling to accost a branch of government, the Supreme Court, I don't believe that's a correct act, uh, characterization what of my tweeted, statements. Though. Did you not tweet that? That you thought that the Supreme Court justices should be accosted? 
What I'm saying is that that, yes that is no? not a accurate characterization of my statements. On June 8th of this year, a man was arrested near Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home in Maryland. He told law enforcement officers he wanted to kill a Supreme Court justice. He was found um, uh, with uh, a knife, with a pistol, two magazines, ammunition, pepper spray, zip ties, a hammer, crowbar, and duct tape. Ms. Carabayo, on page 12 and 13 of your written testimony, you painted concerned parents as having been infiltrated by white nationalists and far-right militia groups which played a significant role in school board protests. This, is not, this has not actually been my experience with concerned parents. In your testimony, you wrote that in Loudoun County, Virginia, unfounded rumors that spread in local parent groups on Facebook about an alleged trans student sexually assaulting a girl in a bathroom led to a firestorm of, of several heated school board protests that descended into violence. But in fact, the perpetrator it actually turned out had committed two sexual assaults at two different Loudoun County schools in 2021 and was arrested on October 7th, 2021 by the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office. These weren't unfounded rumors as you suggest. It actually turns out law enforcement had to act because a sexual assault occurred. So given this, I'm assuming that until now you were unaware of, of what happened here and you're gonna update your testimony for the committee. Is that correct? Here's a soundbite of Jim Acosta and others being misogynists. James, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Arizona these days. Maybe you can help us figure this out. We learned late yesterday that uh, Carrie Lake uh, the Republican who lost the race for governor is, is suing state election officials, uh, challenging the vote count, asking a court to declare her the winner. Uh, is this life after Trump now? Election losers disputing the results? Well, well all right. I, I'm Carrie Lake is she, she's out there. She's goofy and stupid and ignorant. Let me tell you what's going on in Arizona. Proposition 211, which is a citizen's ballot measure to tell people that spent over $5,000 of dark money in Arizona to have to disclose. That passed by 73%. Arizona had a ballot measure that would allow non-citizens to pay the Arizona intuition rate at, at Arizona colleges and universities. That's big news. Kerry Wake being goofy, right-wing, stupid is hardly big or startling news. I mean, she lost. She's done. And by the way, New Mexico, with a 70 percent, had a ballot measure to guarantee daycare for all New Mexicans. There are big stories going on in the southwestern United States that don't involve Carrie Lake. And, you know, we should we should be very aware of these, Jim, very aware. And she'll keep doing everything, every stunt she can pull uh, to get attention. But I don't really think that's the big story coming out of here. Yeah. Essie, what do you think of that? Because, you know, one of the things that is very interesting, the contrast here is is kind of uh, uh, notable in that when Trump was challenging the election results and peddling the big lie and so on, you know, there, there were a fair amount of folks on the MAGA side of the Republican Party who were totally on board with it. Carrie Lake is almost kind of, you know, shouting into a void. Uh, and yeah. there's not a whole lot of folks, you know, jumping on that bandwagon to overturn those election results in Arizona. Listen, Trump changed a lot. Ten years ago, um, you know, if you had not one but several um, election losers 
shouting about challenging the results and and really just being poor sports, they would have been laughed at. Trump does it and it was normalized for a time. And he gave people permission to do it and not not be embarrassed by it. But it's it's been so ineffective, not just practically in that it has overturned no elections, um, but it's really hurt the party and the image of the party. And um, for independence, which you know, you'll need if you're a Republican running for office, it's a huge turnoff, the election denialism, the conspiracy theories, and these never-ending phony audits and recounts and lawsuits. I, I think people people are sick of it. And it's it's now sort of it's not getting the attention that it did, uh, you know, when Trump made it kind of popular. Dickens, A Christmas Carol. No spirits, please. Not of these ghastly visions. I want to be a better man. I want to live. I'm in my room. I'm alive. I can't believe that I'm alive. Thank you, spirits. Thank you for showing me the way. I'm as light as a feather. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as skinny as a drunken man. And I will change. I swear to you, and I will change. I just hope it's not too late. Ah! Oh! You, lad! You down there! Me? Yes, you boy. Tell me, what day is today? Why, it's Christmas Day, sir. Ah! Christmas! Then I haven't missed it. The spirits did it all in one night. My dear boy, do you know the prize goose in the window down the street? The one as big as me? Ah, that's the one. Go and buy it so that Tiny Tim and his family might have a Christmas feast. But what should I buy it with, sir? I'm so poor. Ah, why with this, of course? <laughs> In here, okay? Please take this for your medical bills. What's that? Oh! oh my god! This crazy old man is whipping coins into the eyes of orphans. I didn't know he was an orphan. Oh yeah, like I look like I have living parents. Hey, Scrooge. Just thought I'd check in on you and see how you. Oh my god! Someone arrest that man! He's blinding children for sport! I know. He's always been a cruel old man. He hates us orphans. Let me guess. You toss the coin way up in the air, right? That's a classic mistake. What you want to do is toss the coin straight down. Now watch this. Here, kid, put some ice on it. That was him! Yeah, they can't see me because I'm a ghost, so you look like a total psychopath now. Is it true, Mr. Scrooge? Are you blinding children for fun? Of course not, Tiny Tim. I'm a changed man, I tell you. Now, 
Take this money to fix your legs. I'll just throw it on the ground right there and you can pick it up, okay? was to be nicer to people, but my new advice is to lawyer up. It, it's fine. I, I can take care of this. Let's everyone keep quiet about this whole incident, shall we? And I'll make it worth your while. Please stop yelling and throwing shiny objects. You're going to spoof the horse. <laughs> today, Fighting for change politically requires faith. We are building an army of young people to stop the climate crisis and create millions of good jobs for our generation. Everyone wants to talk about this dispassionately, but this is the world that I will raise my kids in. The more centrist wing is arguing that they want to maintain the status quo. Ain't nobody gonna keep us down. This is going to be the moonshot of our generation. Moments of crisis crack open the window of possibility. We just Sometimes I feel like my job is to get my hands dirty. You're not gonna trick us. Hell no. <laughs> Now is the time to leverage our power. We have tens of thousands of new people joining. We We're in the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. Make them feel like they're going to lose their seats if they don't support this. As long as there are people that you can poison without consequence, there will always be a loophole that the fossil fuel industry can exploit. It's possible to both decarbonize and keep equity and justice at the center. That was classy. Oh, thank you. I'm not, I'm not often called classy. <laughs> Tell my mom. The media is expecting us to fail. Some of us have to actually live the future that you all are setting on fire. We're going to make historic investments and we'll seize the opportunity. We got the candidate that was nominated to come to us. And before we go to a lighter fare, this young man was killed in a workplace shooting in Fort Stewart. I do not have the details. There's very few on it. It's kind of sad. Um, but I wanted to show his face because that's just fucked up. So. We are going to go into our lighter fare, and our lighter fare today is going to be a, a actual funny skit from SNL this weekend with Martin Short and Steve Martin. The trailer for In the End, the AOC movie that garnered $80 per theater and tanked, and Kinziger going on about January 6th and lightning striking, so they told him, to head on inside, but I thought the lightning strike was pretty good.
It doesn't necessarily tell us what their activities are. But I think all you have to do is look out and say they're very interested in what happened on January 6th. So the criminal referrals themselves aren't necessarily something that is going to wake DOJ up to something they didn't know before. But I do think it will be an important symbolic thing that the committee can do, or even more than symbolic, just very clear that Congress thinks you know, a crime has been committed here or the DOJ should, should investigate it. So only a few weeks away, but look, we've taken this job very seriously, and we think the country is going to be far better off for the work that we were able to do. Well, we will all be staying tuned. Thanks very much for joining us this morning. Please go inside. Thanks okay. again. So that wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Share with your family and friends. Go to FOPPodcast.com to find links to everything. It'll be up until January 5th. I unfortunately can't afford the $150 it would cost to renew the website. So we'll be going back to just SoundCloud and Rumble, and I'll change pictures, and we'll just go SoundCloud and Rumble, which most of you listened on SoundCloud. You know, there are very few... Celebrities that I've ever been enamored with. Um, Kurt Cobain dying bothered me. Don't know why. Just did. Bothered me a lot. I was affected by Chester Bennington and, of course, Chris Cornell. We talked about it on this show because those were episodes I did because it really, really bothered me a lot. Sorry, it's still big meds not time. I got to take them. But Chris Farley was probably deeper than all of them because I love that guy. He was just super funny. I don't know how many times I've done fat guy in a little coat and made uh, the Foley character I don't know how many times I've watched Black Sheep and Go West, or the one about the West. I don't remember the name of it. It was shitty, but I still watch it. And I've watched Tommy Boy at least a thousand times. Um, I never get sick of it. So his passing was horrible. So today, as we go out of our podcast, I'm playing a snippet. And if you don't listen to it, Fly on the Wall with Dana Carvey and David Spade is a really good podcast where they bring back SNL alums and people that worked with the show or maybe weren't on there, but they're comedians. And they talk to them about their time in SNL or when they hosted SNL. And it is probably one of my favorite tweets I or uh, podcasts. I tweet about it all the time. Uh, David Spade's even liked a couple of mine, which is a big deal for me because I love David Spade. Uh, his whole bye-bye, and you are. I've done that a million times. I've his little secretary thing. I've skidded that a million times. When I was a drill sergeant, I was skidding it because I was current. It was in the '90s. Um, but they're doing a remembrance of Chris Farley, and it's two two-hour podcasts. And I listened to an hour and a half of the first one with Chris Farley's mother. Um, Adam Sandler, who did a song, Chris Farley, that made me cry when I watched it. It was on SNL. Um, I found myself laughing and getting teary at the same time. Because he was a -a once-in-a-lifetime guy. And he was so sad. And it seems to be 
every good comedian you ever had, except for Dave Chappelle, has had a lot of demons. You know, eating disorders, drinking drugs. And sadly for Chris Farley, it was all of them. And I remember his last SNL pod, uh, SNL show, and he, he looked just horrible. I remember the wife and I going, man, I worry about him. And then he, he passed afterwards. So this is Chris Rock talking about him. It was the preview. But if you were a fan of that guy, um, this is really a nice remembrance. It has been 25 years since he died. And that's hard to believe. Because I reference him daily. It's like he's still around, which is kind of weird. Um, and I'm not angry. You know, Chester Bennington and Chris Cornell, I'm very angry. I have a hard time listening to their music. But Chris Farley was just a beautiful human being for the short time he was on this planet. And... um I think this is a really nice way to remember them. So it's fly on the wall. You can get it if you use like a podcast addict or any podcast, you can pick it up. It's like one of the best podcasts now. It's very popular, be easy to find. And uh, every episode today has been just great. It makes me laugh. You know, I listen to Shapiro and sometimes I listen to Matt Walsh. I listen to bumper door clear or door bumper clear for a NASCAR. Um, what are my other podcast now that I think about it I listen to mine which sounds conceited every weekend when I don't have anything to listen to on a Sunday I will listen to a show so I'll like listen to this show on Sunday um, when I walk and the Dan Bongingo Bondingo is the other one I have I, I listen to him but um, I religiously can't wait and I wake up to a calendar reminder at 5 a.m. on Wednesday mornings to download that show and I push play as I walk out the door and I drive and I walk and I go get a soda for the wife and I drive home listening to fly on the wall. It's just, it's just a great podcast. You're going to laugh. It's impossible not to because Dana Carvey himself with his impressions and David Spade with his smart assery, and then you got the host. I mean, last one was Ed O'Neill, and I never knew Ed O'Neill was a bad guy. He was almost a fucking wise guy before he became an actor, really late in life. So that was a really interesting show. But this Chris Farley one, really great. So thanks for listening, everybody. You take care. Um, you know, we'll look for uh, Sunday, 18 December podcast. Till then, thanks for listening. I mean, the thing about Farley was he was, I mean, I never felt that competition thing everybody talks about, but I, you know, I guess, you know, whatever. It was a very competitive environment, but no one was competing with Farley. Yeah, true, true. No one he was ahead. even thought, you know what I mean? It was just like, he's Michael Jordan. Yeah. And get him the ball. Like, no <laughs> just one, definitely like, give him the ball. If he wanted to take the scene, he could take it if he felt like it. And he was a nice yeah. guy, so he'd lay back sometimes. But if he wanted to go to a move that no one else has, that energy yeah, like, that he could like, explode like literally with. Literally never had one bit of like, hey, this guy doesn't write sketches. Why is he in everything? 
pay. No. Like none of no. that. None of why is he in nine things and I'm in one? Because he's better than you. Because he should why. be in ten. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, exactly. remember the first, I think the first show back might've been Kyle McLaughlin. Cause there's a My twin first peaks show was thing. Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah. And oh. O'Connor. Okay. So wow. Chris, Chris, the not the night she ripped up the Pope thing, but the, the, Did she, was it before the unmemorable after? night? Yeah. <laughs> the unmemorable night. The night she just, she sang she rip anything but, up except Spade's heart. Yeah, Tonight. she was cute. Um, he, after she ripped up the Pope, everyone stopped flirting with her. Uh, so she uh, she had, oh, oh Farley, and the, they wrote a Twin Peaks sketch, because obviously all summer it was a huge show. What's the angle with Kyle McLaughlin from Twin Peaks? And I think Schneider might have cracked that code of like, he they, they solve the case, but they still think it's he keeps it going or something. But Farley was in one scene in handcuffs and he was getting laughs and he had really nothing to do. And that was the first time I was like, there was nothing in read through. And then he's out there and everyone's staring at him. And he's just flipping his head back and forth and getting, and you're like, Oh shit, I, I get it. Something's going on here. No one did distress better than Chris. Like <laughs> he, the way it was like Kennison had his rhythm. Chris had his explosive rhythm. It was, there was all method to his madness. It was, extremely yeah, he, irresistible he had a way of stepping into funny like yeah like it was just on his shoe he didn't know how he got there it's just like yeah he's got yeah ah fucking guy's gone and the funny part was chris he was always sort of in awe of literally every other cast member like just going so funny feels so great oh my god and then everyone's like wait you're the great one dude or even yeah. belushi and you go <laughs> At, there was a point when I said, actually, I think you're better than Belushi. He's like, shut the fuck up. I'm like, I'm telling you, it's been long enough where I'm starting to flip going. We yeah. grew up loving Belushi, of course. And I'm like, it's getting close, dude. Yeah. I mean, I'll take my guy in yeah. that fight. But yeah, you know, I mean, Belushi is great, obviously. Um, Farley had a warmth to him. Yeah, Farley's, you know. Unha unhateable. He's unhateable, and he's what this guy that you know. He's just he's just always himself. Hmm. You know what I mean? In a good way. Very you know unique. I mean? Like, yeah, he was just. He didn't have to really, you know, get into character or anything. He was just fucking funny. <laughs> you know, and you just you yeah. just bought that he was whoever he was playing. Yeah, anybody. Yeah, just play you could, any character, one line, he's getting a laugh. Um, so, so solid. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, sad with our friends not here, but it is curious to like, it's like, wow, what would that guy have done? You know? When I see like Sandler and something like Uncut Gems, it's like, yeah, Farley, Farley could have done that. Farley mm -hmm. could have been in, you know, he's literally, sure that level of actor and that level of like you just felt for that guy you just you know okay whatever yeah. ride chris farley was going to take me on i was definitely ready to go on it yeah if he ever played sad in something yeah he would just own own the audience you know if he went that but the great thing is we have data now and when you look at his best of just chris's 
Farley's best of. It's the best of the best of. You know, <laughs> it's like we can look at it and go, okay, those ten sketches. Nobody has another ten like that. You know. So uh, it's great that we got to see his greatness. And, and Tommy Boy, I think, really captured a lot of Chris. Yeah. It's great that we have some data on how brilliant yeah. and lovable he was. 